All right, thank you for being here for our Hot Topics uh, panel discussion today. We're going to try to cover some topics that hopefully are uh, being talked about in your churches and in your communities. And uh, super excited to be up here with these guys. I'm not going to answer uh, any questions. I just get to be the guy who asks all the questions. So I'm going to actually have them introduce themselves. And uh, guys, if you'll just uh, say your name and then what you do here uh, at the seminary as well as uh, in your local churches, what ministries are you involved in in your local churches as well. So. My name is Brad Hambrick. Uh, I serve as an instructor of biblical counseling here at Southeastern Seminary, uh, as well as the pastor of counseling at the Summit Church. Hello, my name is Walter Strickland, and I um, serve as Associate Vice President for Kingdom Diversity Initiatives at Southeastern, um, sort of overseeing our diversity efforts, trying to make our, our campus more like, our, more like the kingdom and then preparing students to serve in an ever-diversifying world and America. Uh, also, I, I'm assistant professor of systematic and contextual theology. And um, at my church, uh, I, I do some preaching. Um, I have been a small group leader in the past and uh, just try to serve and support my local church. Uh, I'm John Hammett. I teach systematic theology here at Southeast. I've been here 23 years, longer than anybody else on the panel here. And at my church, I'm an elder and a uh, faith group leader. I am Dwayne Milioni. I have been teaching here since 1997. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of preaching, and I also coordinate the Ph.D. in preaching program, and I serve as a lead pastor of Open Door Church. As well as uh, the Pillar Network, right, Dwayne? All right. So let's jump in and ask some questions. Uh, I'm going to target questions to you guys, but anybody who wants to chime in after... Uh, I call on a specific person to answer a question. If anybody else wants to speak to that question, you certainly can do that. So, Dr. Hammett, can we start with you? Could you start us off by talking about the biblical concept of justice, both God's justice and how we as Christians can be involved in justice in the world? Well, well, justice does start with God. He's the standard of justice. He's the one that upholds justice. I want to explain in the Scripture, justice and righteousness... And they're both translations of the same Greek and Hebrew words. So justice is not just a legal thing. It's what is right. Hmm. So, so God upholds what is right. He uh, stands for what is right. And so this is the idea. This is why, why justice and mercy aren't contradictory. Because something it's right to be merciful. So Scripture says, uh, love, do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Those aren't contradictory. So doing what is right is the key there. Now, in the world, God has ordained the state to be the agency that has the power to uphold justice. Reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. Well, good and evil means that the state is not a neutral thing. It must be a concept of good and evil. And that's where we come in. As believers, our job is to persuade, embody, model, how to treat people rightly. And persuade our, our governing authority to do that as well. So, for example, we believe that, that all humans are worthy of respect and dignity. And so we want to, to embody that by the way we live. And then encourage our government to do the same thing, to have justice in treating people the right way. Um, women, widows, orphans, and aliens, and the unborn. So uh, we, we model that out in our relationships with each other. We encourage our government to, this is the way to treat people, and we persuade, this is good for all of our citizens. So that's how we uphold justice in the world. That's great. 
Anybody else want to speak to that other than Dr. Hammond? All right, Dr. Strickland. So when it comes to social justice, um, that's a pretty popular topic in our world today. When it comes to social justice, what dangers do we need to avoid as we engage in advocating for justice in the world? Well, <clears throat> well, first of all, I think that Dr. Hammond was very, very helpful in saying that justice is a biblical word. This is not alien to the biblical text. Um, but um, also, I, I, think, I think that because it's been done so poorly by those who do not claim Christ uh, and by some Christians who are wayward in their attempts to pursue social justice, I think it's wrong to just not pursue it at all. So, um, and then also I, I would just say that um, I, I think there's a lot of people who really either feel or see a lot of the very pressing social issues that uh, bespeak the brokenness of living in a Genesis 3 world. And because of that, they just go grasping at whatever tools that are available sort of blindly. Uh, and sometimes those tools can be emerging from secular contexts. And I would, just be, I, I would say that's a danger because the Bible should be our, our, our governing book. It, it should give us the means by which we redress those things that are uh, signs of brokenness you know, as we are treating one another, as Dr. Hammond was, was saying. And so uh, I think it's very helpful to, for us to look to a, a verse like uh, Colossians 2, verse 8, where it says, don't become captive to uh, secular philosophies. Um, I, I think that um, the captivity to those things is what some Christians you know, grab a hold of in their attempt to do good, but without taking the time to look in the scripture and seeing exactly how the Bible would have us to redress those ills in society. So uh, I, I guess um, grasping at whatever we see as somebody who's engaging those issues that we find to be troubling without uh, you know, going to the Bible first and seeing how the Bible would have us not to be captive to those things. And so, But if you look at the first two chapters of Colossians, it's, it's all about the supremacy of Christ. The exaltation of Christ, being alive to Christ. Christ is supreme in all things. All the richness and the and the truth is found in Him, and so and then that's that's on both sides of that admonition to not be held captive. You see that? So if we are just enamored with Christ, if we're alive to Him, then we don't have to be scared of those other philosophies that are out there. Um, you know, there there's a, a real sense in which that you know they people might confuse you at maybe moments for, uh, you know, brushing up against them or something like that. But uh, we need to be enamored with Christ so much so that we are dead to those secular philosophies so that we aren't held captive by them. And so um, all I have to say, not seeing it as a biblical word, uh, you know, I think it's a danger not engaging uh, because we're scared of falling into traps that people have fallen into who don't know Christ or those who are, haven't been careful as Christians, but then really um, you know, being enamored with Christ and then using the Scripture as our basis for pursuing a righteous goal. It seems to me as if sometimes we fall, what we're observing in our world right now and certainly in the church, like we're falling on the extreme. So either for some people, everything is a social justice issue, and, it, and it, the social justice is the gospel, to we shouldn't be involved in social justice at all. Right, so it's 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 either feast or famine, and it seems like maybe there should be like a middle ground in there somewhere where justice is a gospel issue. It's not the gospel, but it is a gospel issue, right? 
Yeah, and I would say, you know, by being a gospel issue, I would say that the, the, the gospel is a good news of Christ restoring all that was broken in the fall of Genesis 3. He's restoring all things. And if we're, if we're going to be biblical, we have to find out the areas in which sin has broken our relationship to each other, has broken the way in which we commune together, which is like in society, and the, the, the rules and the laws and the practices that uphold our coming together and living together. Whatever bespeaks and whatever we see that sort of embodies that brokenness that we see in Genesis 3, we ought to be addressing as Christians. Why? Not because we're just doing justice, but because we are reflecting the, the character of our God, but also as Christians, we're the ones who are called to give a sneak peek to, be, to offer the world a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come where the rule and the reign of Christ will be uninterrupted. And that is a place where justice will be perfected. That's awesome. Dr. Hammond, you want to speak to that? Yeah. Just one uh, caution there. I think sometimes we think of social justice only in terms of political ends and goals and those types of things. Uh, politics is good, but it's not ultimate. Uh, changing hearts. Uh, we overcome evil not by legislation but with good. And so living that, that counterexample, that little sneak preview within the church, showing us that here's what life is like under the rule of God. And changing their hearts that way, uh, that's at least as important as changing laws and those types of things. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Hamburg. Anybody else want to speak to that? All right, so, Dr. Hamburg, we're discovering more and more the widespread catastrophic impact that abuses of power have had, and that's resulted in some cases in sexual abuse. So lots of talk over the course of the last year. I know you led the team that developed the Church Cares, uh, uh, the Church Who Cares Well for the Abuse for the Convention. If an allegation is made against a pastor or another church leader involving possible sexual abuse, what are some wise first steps that that pastor or that church needs to make if that happens? Yes, I. Uh, it has been a intense year working on the churchcares.com curriculum. That is something uh, I will tell you, everybody on that team completely volunteered their services. Uh, and so when I say that is something that I would highly recommend that you go, uh, you watch uh, the videos, you receive that training, uh, what I'm going to give you is a brief snippet here of that. Uh, but there are no kickbacks happening there. This is just wanting the church to respond well uh, to the most vulnerable uh, in our community. Uh, and so uh, if somebody, whether it be pastoral staff, volunteer, um, that you learn of abuse um, at a logistical level uh, in terms of what the church can do, if this is somebody that you have issued church technology to, take that back. Uh, that the evidence that will be needed for justice to occur, uh, there is a strong probability that is there. Uh, as churches, we cannot confiscate private property. Uh, but at that point where the church has issued a laptop or something of that nature, that may be of immense value. Uh, now, in terms of legal steps that are taken, uh, if the abuse is against a minor... Uh, the immediate step uh, is to contact Child Protective Services uh, or whatever the equivalent of that entity is uh, in your state. So if you're not from North Carolina, that may be Department of 
children and family services. Uh, can go by several different names, state by state. Uh, but that is, uh, that is the legal standard, that if something raises above reasonable suspicion uh, that uh, a child uh, or someone else not able of self-care, uh, so elderly or somebody facing uh, cognitive limitations, if somebody is not capable of self-care, uh, then what our governing authorities, I would say, rightly have said, we will step in, we will intervene, we will advocate uh, on their behalf, uh, and we are placing the expectation on all citizens uh, that if you're aware of that, let us know. Uh, now, if that abuse is against an adult, uh, there uh, the choice of the adult uh, is more in play. Uh, and so there, uh, what I would recommend, what the churchcares.com team would say, is connect that person with someone who is experienced walking alongside victims of abuse. There are immensely difficult decisions being made at that point of, if I come forward and I press charges, am I willing to go through that legal process do I want to be cross-examined? Do I want this part of my life to be known publicly uh, in a way that the legal process would require? Am I ready for that? What would it take to get ready for that? Am I okay if nothing is done? Uh, would I be able to live with that? Uh, what is the likelihood that other people may be in danger? Uh, and, and so at that initial step, if this is someone who is, um, is on our staff and a, uh, and a credible uh, threat comes or a credible report, uh, at that point, uh, let's, let's receive back uh, technology that we have at church. Uh, if it is a uh, minor who is involved, one of the things we have to learn, CPS is our friend. Uh, CPS is not bored. I promise you, if you talk to a social worker, uh, if as pastors we think we are overworked, the rivals and secular counterpart for overwork and burnout is social workers. They do not take cases because they need to fill their day. Um, that that report's going to be vetted by the initial person you call. They're going to take it to their supervisor. If you want to know what happens after that phone call, we've got a section in churchcares.com that just walks you through the standard process of what that would be. Uh, but you make that call, and they serve as the expert second opinion. Uh, they know how to ask questions in such a way that the information is admissible in a legal process if it's needed so that if we have a child in play, uh, that this child is not having to tell their story seven times to multiple adults that they do not know, getting re-traumatized, wonder what they did wrong because they talked about what somebody did to them. This is something that as a church, that is probably the first time we've done this, that we would say, oh, we're, we're rookies at walking through this. Partnering with somebody like CPS, this is people who this is their training, their schooling, their experience. They've done this with supervision. Uh, they have a process. They know how to get the right people in the room to observe uh, that interview so that everything that's needed is done one time for that child. Um, and then for the adult, 
let's pair them with somebody who can help them think through the weight of decisions that they're facing. So, Dr. Hambert, what would you say then, because we, we hear this kind of pushback against what you just said occasionally, what would you say to the person who says, yeah, but I think 1 Corinthians 6 teaches that we don't need to involve the secular sources. We just need to handle this inside the church. We don't need to go outside the church. We need to keep our business. We don't want to defame the kingdom or Jesus' name or anything like that. So let, let's not involve the authorities. Let's just handle it in-house. What would you say against that? The salty side of me says we don't protect God's name by covering up sexual abuse. Um, that, uh, that the motive behind that seems misguided. Um, the non-salty side uh, would say, let's, let's look at the fuller context. Uh, that Romans 13 uh, says the, that the civil authorities are our partners for justice. Uh, and, and so uh, I think what is, if we talk in terms of American legal system, what is more in view uh, in 1 Corinthians 6 is a civil lawsuit. Uh, and so uh, my neighbor cuts down some limbs off of the tree that I have in my yard. We're both believers. Uh, we get crunchy with one another. And I'm like, I'm going to show you. I'm going to take you to court. Uh, and at that point, our immaturity, uh, making something like that a bigger deal and saying we can't handle this, um, that, that does defame the name of Christ. Uh, Romans 13 has matters that are not criminal, uh, or not civil, uh, but criminal. And when we're talking about uh, the abuse of individuals, um, especially minors, uh, then we have bridged into the area where we are, we're dealing with matters that are criminal. And Romans 13 would say those matters that are illegal, God has given jurisdiction to the state. Those matters that are immoral, God has given jurisdiction to the church. And so when it overlaps, and we would say, Oh, sexual abuse is not just illegal, it's also immoral. Uh, one of the things that can become frustrating in church leadership is that once you start the legal process, which you should do, it means the church process is going to go slower. Uh, people are going to have an attorney, and they're going to say, my attorney has advised me not to talk about that until the legal process has ended. At the same time, what we have to recognize is that legal process is our friend. Uh, because uh, a near universal aspect of abuse is that it's private. Abuse usually doesn't happen in the produce section at Walmart. It happens where that second and third witness is not present. It happens in the context of a power differential where the oppressor can silence and shame the victim. And so in that same argument is oftentimes, well, how can we do this without the second or third witness? Well, those who are used to coming alongside the most vulnerable uh, and have a structured process for garnering those interviews, then in this case, in situations that are almost always private and that are marked by power differential, then... Allowing that to be vetted in this expert second opinion way gives us that second or third witness that we would say, as a church, uh, this is, I don't know how we would get that information otherwise. 
who's the pastor in the Church Cares website uh, that, that you guys use? Who's the guy that I'm thinking of? What's his name? Uh, Micah Edmondson Micah. or Chris Moles? Micah. So there's a great illustration. This is one of the only times I'll actually in, involve myself here. When I was watching the Church Cares material, uh, one of the best illustrations, and I'm pretty sure it's Micah who's the one who uses it, he says, you know, if I walk into my office this morning as a pastor and I find a dead body in the floor, I don't think, you know, I probably ought to go call the elders and the deacons and we ought to try to figure out what happened here. Nobody thinks that. They think I need to call the authorities. Why? Because I'm not qualified to know how to investigate a murder and illegality has happened here. We need to get the authorities involved. But somehow in the church with abuse, we've not equated those types of things where we've so easily been able to identify, oh, we need to, this is maybe a little bit beyond what we need to be doing. Can I ask you a question? Yes. For Brad, Um, when you hear hear a report of sexual abuse, are you saying you talk to the victim first before you contact the authorities? Well, it is usually from the victim that you would hear that report. Okay. Uh, Now, there may be times when uh, if you're talking to a parent, uh, and one of the things to realize is if you have the uh, parent saying, this is what's going on at home, I'm not sure, there's a good chance they're not just telling you their child's story. They're also telling you their own story. Uh, that where that kind of abuse of power disregard is going on, uh, that uh, the legal threshold uh, is reasonable suspicion. And once we're at that point where we know, okay, I... I know enough to know that I'm concerned. Uh, I'm uncomfortable. That litmus test of this is credible enough that the pit of my stomach is is starting to feel uh, off. That you're not pressing charges. Uh, That as a church where we call um, CPS frequently, Mm -hmm. if anything, I want them to do more. There are times when uh, I can think in the last six months where we made an initial phone call. We shared with them the information that we had. Uh, they're going to let you know whether they take that case. They, they told us, no, we're, we're not going to take that case. Two weeks later, uh, same family, uh, somebody from the school called, made a second concern. Those two pieces of information together uh, were enough to get the action that I really do think was needed. Uh, and so, um, you know, that threshold of being reasonable suspicion, you're normally going to be talking to the victim. You may be talking to somebody with firsthand information. What if the victim does not want this to become public knowledge? They, they don't want to be reported. Do you report it anyway to the authorities? Uh, if it is a child, yes. Adult. Uh, if it's an adult, uh, that's where you pair them with someone uh, who can help them process that because it is whether you're looking at Christian literature, whether you're looking at secular literature, uh, the choice of whether to press charges. Uh, When you talk with someone, when they share their story and they're reflecting back on it, am I glad I did this? Am I not? You get a real felt sense for how tumultuous that decision is. Uh, But the most dangerous time, if we're talking about an adult victim, is the time just before and just after disclosure. That is the period of time where uh, the adult victim is in most danger uh, because they are usually least uh, solidified in what they want to do. 
the abusive, oppressive individual has got the shock of this beginning to leak and they are trying to get it back under control. And so to press for something to be done um, before the victim is ready for that uh, exposes them to danger. That's another reason we want to pair them with somebody who can walk with them, make that assessment, help them to prepare well for whatever step that they take. And that person is the, the outside person. Is that person uh, uh, in the governmental sphere, church sphere, either one? Um, if we're going to find people who have walked with dozens of individuals in this kind of situation, uh, that is usually going to be a, um, a licensed counselor, social worker, uh, maybe somebody in law enforcement, um, that uh, those are the individuals who who have walked that journey enough uh, that uh, they cannot speculate. I think this may be what's going to happen, but they can give um, a more robust experience base. Here's how this goes down. Here are the critical junctures uh, and prepare that individual. Uh, Also, one of the things that we need to recognize, um, I don't know if I apologize for talking too much, but I'm getting additional (laughs) questions here, that when something goes legal, as pastors, as lay leaders, the most weight our words can provide is character testimony. I am a pastoral counselor. I am not a licensed counselor. Uh, I have counselor in my job description. If I get subpoenaed to a court to testify on behalf, in the eyes of the judge and the legal system, um, I'm just a pastor. That means my testimony is just going to be a character testimony. I'm not going to offer expert assessment-based testimony. That's not how they view me. Uh, And so it is also a matter of not just the experience level, but who can represent this person as it moves into the process uh, in a way that the person that they are talking to carries the right weight to execute that journey. Dr. Milioni, you're a lead pastor, and you train a lot of lead pastors uh, in the Pillar Network. And certainly we want to do everything that Dr. Hamburg has talked about in involving our people helping neighbors and the authorities. And But that doesn't mean we can just abdicate our responsibility in the church in terms of caring for people. And so what do you, what's the church's role then in coming alongside individuals who have been abused? Because some people might say, you know, well, we're not qualified. You know, we need to just turn this over to the authorities and the church doesn't have a role to play. What, what would you say to that? Well, first, I would say I, as a pastor, I greatly appreciate all that Brad and his team is offering us. And I greatly appreciate everything that Walter does um, in bringing out social injustice that has is happening in the church and through the church. So, I mean, these are not easy issues you guys deal with, and yet we have neglected far too long as local churches and as pastors in dealing with them. And so, I appreciate what you guys have done. I, it's not it's not fun to set these out on the table and say where have we failed but i think that's the beginning place of moving forward yeah in the local church i don't know i i cannot imagine 
pastors who would cover up abuse in the church. I mean, you, you have got to have a flawed church government if you would cover up abuse uh, that is taking place in your church. I think that I think we do need encouragement and resources, but I just think we also just need the truth of the scriptures, our own wisdom, and a sincere love for our people. I, w- I would suggest that you empower your elders, that the elders are active and empowered so that the entire church knows, including from the lead pastor to every staff person, every significant member, they know that they cannot get away with abuse in their church, that there will be immediate, an immediate response to every allegation that's put before them, and they are going to respond biblically and wisely and lovingly as they can. I think that would help in some prevention of this. I think it needs to be top down. But then, also, as I was, I was just reflecting on all the churches that are dealing with these allegations. As a pastor, I think sometimes we fail to forget that we are first and foremost to be shepherds. I mean, a pastoral ministry these days is you study, you teach, you preach, you travel, and you meet, and you meet, and you move from one meeting to another meeting and another meeting. And, and, and I think sometimes in all of that we fail to forget what the responsibility of a shepherd is. And I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about John 10, you know, because Jesus is he's making this contrast between a good shepherd and a hired hand. And it's interesting because Jesus says the hired hand lets the sheep be abused. But the good shepherd doesn't. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I think we should reclaim some of the responsibility that we have to care and to protect, you know, especially the most vulnerable of our flock. So good. Anybody else? Yeah, Brandon, speak to that. I think that gut level question that you raised is one that resonates with most of us of how does a church ever get to the spot of covering up abuse? Like that, that should furrow our brow. Um, here's what I find to be the most common pattern. Mistakes don't get made because we ask the right question and arrive at the wrong answer. It's because we don't see the questions that we need to be asking early on. We make four, five, six decisions. And then the light comes on, oh, we should have handled that differently three weeks ago, a month ago, two months ago. And it's at that point where because the initial questions weren't clear, that that self-protective sense of liability... We didn't handle this well. We may be in trouble too. Uh, that we begin to kind of pitter step, uh, as opposed to um, taking that good shepherd, bold pastoral care step. That that we would all in a situation like this go, yes, that's what we would do. Uh, but if we don't know those early questions then we make a few missteps in the early moments of receiving a disclosure. The fear of culpability comes in, and then we start, uh, we start to make bigger mistakes. 
Dr. Miliani, really appreciate the reminder out of John 10. I, I was in a conversation just this last week with someone, and I said, I fear that one of the things that got us to this place was when pastors became more risk managers than they did shepherds. It was their job to manage the risk that was posed to the church by some sort of a disclosure. And it wasn't, they weren't managing the risk to the victim. They were managing the risk to the church's reputation. And and that's where they, that's how they ended up in that place. It wasn't a, wasn't a bad intention. It was just a, it was misguided. So, uh, so Dr. Hamburg, a lot's been made uh, about listening to women's voices in the church, uh, especially as all of these um, abuses of power, sexual misconduct allegations have been made. Uh, coming out, discovered uh, over the course of the last year. Um, Some have said that failing to listen to women's voices has contributed to the problem of abuse in our churches and in the convention. So how do we as complementarians, you know, here at Southeastern, we're decidedly complementarian. How do we as complementarians do a better job of listening to women's voices and how might that help us as we push back against abuse? Uh, I'll kind of start the question maybe in reverse. Uh, As opposed to thinking of the church's response in a moment of disclosure, let's start with the reference point of the journey of the survivor to the moment of disclosure. Uh, That's a long journey. You uh, You have a moment of abuse or moments that were private, uh, where somebody I should have trusted took advantage of their position, you then have some time period of silence where it's just the insult of life going on as normal. I mean, the kid gets abused on the weekend, goes to school on Tuesday, has a spelling test, spell fair. Um, where they're trying to filter everything that we're saying and doing through, how does this fit to what happened to me? How would you respond to me if I told you? Uh, And then when the survivor is female, uh, she comes into an all-male environment where uh, the probability being that her abuser was male. And so uh, if we view this just through that kind of practical pastoral concern. Um, it, when somebody begins to share something, say, who would you like with you? There's no church polity qu- problems with that question uh, that, that simply says, this is hard. This is scary. I recognize that as a pastor... I'm somebody you should be able to trust. I'm somebody where there's, even if I don't lord it over you, there's a power differential in our relationship. Uh, I share the gender of somebody who hurt you. How could I make this moment of us caring for you easier, better? Uh, And that, when it comes across as pastoral care instead of responding to uh, advocates or some kind of regulatory reaction, it's going to be much more nurturing. Uh, one of the practices that I've seen uh, our pastor, uh, J.D. Greer, put in that's a separate subject off of this just in terms of voice. Uh, 
you know, early in pastoral ministry, somebody said to Pastor J.D., uh, you're going to preach to the last five people you talk to. You know, that whoever talked to you before the sermon, that's who's in your head. You're going to talk, to, you're going to preach to the last five people you talk to. He said, well, that needs to be a part of my sermon prep. Uh, and so there's that opportunity where he, uh, he, you know, he's a diligent person. By Wednesday, sermon is usually about 70% finished. That in and of itself is a miracle. Um, but he will invite people into a room where he walks through and he has people of different ages, genders, ethnic backgrounds just saying, hey, speak into this sermon. What are the opportunities that I would miss uh, that this text, that this message affords? What are the things that I say that may just come across differently than I want? And that is a way, instead of viewing that aspect as a weakness... And again, there's nothing wrong with just saying, hey, let's, let's have some female voices in the room uh, to, to speak into uh, sermon development. Look, man, you've done so many sports illustrations at this point, you just need to let that go and come up with something else. Um, those kinds of things, they, they show a great degree of care uh, for the congregation as a whole. Uh, and a big part of what we're talking about here is just care. Dr. Hammond? Another possible suggestion there is if you have an altar call in your church where people come forward at the end, use this pastors to counsel. Want to have some women involved there? So they come forward for prayer. They can pray with a lady, with just a man. Nothing wrong with that. So I think having some counselors at the front at the end of a service as well. Yeah, that's good. Dr. Milioni, uh as, a, again, a lead pastor, and, and you have an opportunity to train a lot of pastors, what, what are some of the things that we can do to help develop women for ministry, you know, in so that they can take advantage of a, a full spectrum of opportunities in terms of the local church. Let me say something broadly and then, and then try to get to the question. I think broadly speaking that um, in the present day, we as church leaders, we, we have got to figure out how to discuss and to define and to defend, I'll alliterate that, our uh, biblical anthropology. I mean, I think Walter and John can speak to this better than me, but it seems like in the history of the church there have been eras where the church has been tasked to give clarity on a particular doctrine, like the early church was Christology and Reformation was soteriology and bibliology. It seems to me like our responsibility today is to figure out anthropology. I mean, but with clarity. Like we, we know how to defend and define and confess what does it mean for a person to be made in the image of God, how the human person is different than other creatures and how the human person is represented on earth distinct as male and female, both image bearers. And, and, and to be able to make that confession so that we can have a foundation to deal with what Al Mohler is talking about, this sexual and moral revolution taking place, uh, dealing with gender appropriately, and I just, I feel like our foundation is a little weak and it needs to be bolstered there so that when we come to complementarianism, 
then it's undergirded, right, by a rich theology of anthropology. And so for me, I came to a position on complementarianism, I'm embarrassed to say, pragmatically and negatively. Like, all right, what are all the things a woman can't do in the church? So I've got to make sure I have that list because I want to be biblical. And now I've had to totally rethink that and repent of that. So now I'm trying to think from a doctrinal position up, what are all of the things that a woman can do and should do in the local church? So here's a practical take, uh, example. So, you know, we have been, I'm a part of a growing network, and my church has been planning and revitalizing churches for 15 years. And we have developed a pretty robust training for men, an internship, two to three years. You know, we equip them, we prepare them, and then we send them out. And we've been sending out teams for many, many years. But what I failed to do is equip the women. And a lot of the guys are married, and we're also sending a lot of single women out on our teams. And so we recognize that sometimes the women are struggling, that we're sending out nationally or internationally. And, duh, that's my failure. So recently, in the last several years, we've concurrently developed a women's internship at our church. It's a very robust two-year program. So a men's internship and a women's internship. Uh, I have 15 guys in my program. My wife, who oversees the women's internship, she has 50 women in her program. To our neglect, there are so many women who say, I want this. I want to be taught and equipped how I can serve my church. And so I just would suggest that we all develop that. And I just think there will be tremendous fruit as a result of it. That's awesome. Thank you. Anybody else want to speak to that? Amen. Call women to mentor. Titus 2, older women, mentor younger women. Uh, if, you, if you're there, uh, jump in. Don't, don't wait to be asked. Mentor younger women. That's awesome. So, Dr. Hammett, uh, our panel includes pastors and, and elders from churches with different kind of strategies and philosophies of church multiplication, including multi-site churches. So how does our ecclesiology impact our view of kind of church health, church growth, church multiplication? How does our ecclesiology, you know, play into that? Well, the, the phrases church health, church growth, they begin with the word church. Ecclesiology is about what is the church from God's point of view, from scriptural point of view. So until we get that clear first, whether it's the church as God designs it, as God desires it, church health, church growth, those, I think they can't be evaluated well. If we had all time some ecclesiology doctrine of the church undergirding those, we'll make our decisions purely on pragmatics. And pragmatics may produce more numbers for a while, but will be healthy numbers. A big example I can think of is Willow Creek. Willow Creek was a very seek-oriented church, very rapidly growing church. They did a study called Reveal. They found they weren't doing very well because they had not thought through their ecclesiology. So ecclesiology helps us think from, from a biblical point of view, what should a church be? And uh, until we know that, we can't talk about church growth, church health in meaningful ways. So, <clears throat> Dr. Milioni, do you see some kind of maybe best practices in terms of having a biblical, robust ecclesiology, particularly as we think about, like as churches grow, you know, a lot of these, you know, guys may be contemplating, do we need to go multi-site? Do we need to, 
you know, use video? Do we need to just plant? Like, what do you see as some best practices as they begin to kind of think through all of that? You, you would ask me that. But if, you, if you're here at the Nine Marks event and you paid for this conference and you're considering going multi-site, I think there's still time to get your money back. <laughs> I think Exponential is meeting in the spring. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty Nine Marks-ish on this one. I think that any move away from the local church assembling to worship is a move away from, I guess what you say, a biblical robust ecclesiology. And so I, I would have a desire to see the church just coming together as one church. Um, especially when, when we're thinking about worship. And I could be wrong. I actually see Paul describing this in Philippians 1.1. I think he's saying there's one localized church. It's contained all of the members are regenerate, calls them saints. And within the contained church, all of the over officers are there. The, the overseers are there and the deacons are all in the one. Um, I, and I, I think, read all the Nine Mark stuff. I mean, they for years have been discussing these issues and I, 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 I agree with them. I, I really agree with one of the nine marks is church discipline and you know we have to have a healthy practice of church discipline church restoration and um, I don't know how that works well in a multi-site multi-campus context so that that would be one of the things that I would bring out I I guess let me um, talk about preaching that's what's really dear to my heart and now I'm a purist here so you know Brad, make sure you um, you chime in after. I'm this. getting the boxing gloves ready for Brad. Okay. So, <laughs> I, my sucker punch can't reach all the way over there, but it's, I'm going to try. Uh, I'm a I'm a purist when it comes to preaching, and for me, preaching demands to be an incarnational event. It, it, by definition, for me, preaching is a live person to congregation uh, event if 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 preaching is an essential component of worship then worship is an event in time and and worship is the gathering of worshipers and so i i would say that for me that the pastor who is responsible to preach must be physically present um, for it to be a worship event. Now, again, I'm a purist, so I would probably even extend my understanding of that, that if it is not a live preacher to a live congregation, that it's not preaching. Because I see preaching as something that happens in time, right? And I just think the problem, if you are watching a sermon created by digital distance, then you've, you've removed it from that sort of event in time, whereas what my mentor called preaching being the moment of, of truth. And, and so 
all of the central aspects of worship when the church gathers must happen by worshipers who are physically present. The reading of scripture, singing, the observance of the ordinances, and preaching. So if, for instance, if Sunday, if I, it's my turn to preach, and if I go to the pulpit and I say to my congregation, today I'm going to read a very dramatic sermon from Charles Spurgeon. And I didn't preach. All I did was read one of Spurgeon's sermons. And then, amen, and that was it. Well, I think we could be edified. But I don't think that preaching happened. Because I think what we were doing is I think we were reading about an event where preaching happened. I think we're reading about preaching. We're reading a sermon that was written about preaching. And so... I would extend that to say that if I'm watching something that's been previously done, then I don't know if I'm going to say an act of worship has taken place in this, in this environment. And then that's enough sucker punch. But one more thing. Uh, uh, one more thing. If I can use your sage advice, uh, uh, Brad is about asking the right questions. Here's my growing concern about technology, that we are not asking all the right questions of incorporating technology into our church. So we'll, we, we love to ask the question, what can technology do for us? But we are not asking the question, what is technology doing to us? We, we love asking the question, what can technology add to our church and our worship. But we're not asking the question, what is technology taking away from us? I just would have us consider to ask some more questions. That's it. Okay. Dr. Hambrick, um, punch back. <laughs> How does, as, as a pastor on a multi-site staff at the summit, um, how does a multi-site serve a community and a church well? Yeah, if you're thinking about multi-site, uh, because multi-site is trendy, uh, because it's the things to do, because it will get you in a church growth magazine, uh, those are all really bad reasons. Uh, and that's where kind of uh, John Chris style, we need to kind of check our heart on that. Um, the huh, I was funny. Somebody got my joke. I feel better about myself. Somebody got it. As a counselor, that makes me feel good. Um, but, um, yeah, I came to Summit post-multi-site. Uh, I came from a parachurch setting. Uh, so I was in a parachurch counseling center where we serve churches. Uh, my role there uh, is, a, um, is a central support role within the church. Uh, and I think one of the advantages that you get uh, is that the opportunity to have people who not just for that church, uh, but for other churches who can create resources with good church DNA uh, that are specialized. Uh, and so one of the, uh, if you go to about any member of Summit, uh, they should be able to tell you one of our goals uh, is to plant a thousand churches in this generation, uh, not to plant a thousand campuses, uh, but to plant a thousand churches. Uh, and I think there are distinct advantages that exist uh, where the opportunity is there uh, for multi-site to serve that. Uh, 
in that the opportunity for uh, an extended period of time, uh, most of our church planners, uh, if I could pick one book from Pastor J.D. for you to read, uh, I get no kickback for this, uh, but if I could pick one book for you to read, it would be Gaining by Losing. Uh, because uh, on any given year, uh, we send out five to seven church plants. Uh, those church plants will leave uh, with 50 to 100 uh, of our satisfied members who are excited about going. So it's not church planting by church splitting. Uh, and they go with a pastor that we've been able to invest in for years with members who have led ministries that it hurts to see them go because that aspect of sending your best uh, is part of the culture. Uh, and if multi-site ever becomes ingrown, absolutely. Uh, the questions of technology, wonderful questions that have to be wrestled with uh, at the organizational level, at the personal level. Um, you know, what, what do these opportunities um, cost us, but the if it is a part of a strategy for planting church and it's still about advancing the cause of Christ through his primary instrument, which is the church, and not just raising the prestige of the senior pastor because uh, there is more ways for that person to be seen by more people, uh, then, uh, then I do think it can be a tool uh, that will not at all be the tool for every congregation in the sense that it's being advocated for, uh, but uh, when you get to the point where you're asking, hey, our church has grown. Do we just build a bigger building? How many people are going to drive to that building? The people who are already really committed to Christ will. Maybe even people from other churches who see the bigger, nicer building will come to that. But the unsaved neighbor uh, who's got um, you know, a church member living next to them, they're not driving 30 minutes to go to that. Uh, and so part of multi-site for us is stay where you are, be the church in your community where we have large populations of people who are already driving too far. Let's catalyze those people who are already there. Give a campus so that more effective personal ministry can occur. Um, again, just thinking through some of the good questions there. Church discipline. Um, being a part of the counseling ministry, I see some of the more dicey parts. Um, something that is unfortunately common, affairs between church members. Uh, that in that moment, what do you do? The church where I grew up, 150, 200 people, depending on how much people like the pastor that year. And two people in the same church have that affair. Do you remove one? Is it good for those two people to interact? Because it would be better pastoral counseling care not for that regular interaction, but to have the both couples under the shepherding presence of a shared elder body who can be aware. Uh, you know, there are some church discipline style advantages that exist there where you can place people in a position where they're not losing community. They're under the same uh, elder care, but you're able to afford the kind of protections and accountability uh, that you would want to. Can I jump in? Yep. Uh, I'm not quite as negative on multi-site as nine marks. <laughs> I'm, I'm open to the possibility, but the danger I see, and the question we have to ask is, what makes a church one church? 
Uh, does it require geographical sameness or relational? In, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, they, were, had, they, they had relational. One, they may not met together every week, 3,000 in Jerusalem, but they knew each other. And I saw, so I want to ask uh, multi-site churches, what makes your grouping one church? Do you know each other enough to have a relational oneness? And if not, why not think about moving from multi-site to multiple churches? And you can still have some type of relationship with each other. But I would like for multi-site churches to think about spinning off campuses as locally autonomous churches, not isolated, but, but autonomous churches with their own pastors and their types of things. So I think those are the questions I'd raise. That's good. So, Dr. Strickland, let's uh, kind of jump topics just a little bit. Um, when we talk about discipleship, right, sometimes it can seem like that's what, that's what like, the super Christians do, you know, or the people that were getting ready to plan to go out and plan a church. And sometimes it seems like it's maybe not accessible for the everyday believer. How do we disciple people for faithfulness not just in their church, but also like in their vocations. Like, what, what, how do we go about doing that? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. So, if we first understand um, what discipleship is, um, and, and I sort of take a John eight sort of idea, uh, teaching people how to, to abide in Christ and to live out Christ in a real and genuine way. So, uh, moving away from the assumption that in our discipleship processes. It's the opportunity to store, stack, and to shelve information. But the reality is that information is, needs to be useful to living it out in real life. So um, <clears throat> if we understand discipleship as that, there's different ways in which it can go about. It could be very formal, where we're meeting with people on a regular basis. Dr. Milioni has mentioned this in his, in his group. But he's also uh, meeting with people informally and interacting with people because, after all, as Christians... Anybody that we encounter, we ought to be pushing them in some way towards Christ, living out Christ-likeness in a, in a real and genuine way. So uh, take those formal relationships, but also those informal relationships captive, those moments where you have the ability to speak the truth of Scripture into a circumstance that a, that a brother or sister is, is you know, talking about. That's an opportunity to disciple them in a real and tangible way. Um, and so th there's the, the informal opportunities, the, the formal opportunities, uh, and then there's different spheres in which this happens as well. One is, I'll take Martin Luther's four spheres, I think they're very helpful. Uh, one is the home, and then one is your community, then one is in your church, and then also the, the place in which you get paid to work. We all work constantly, I know you guys understand this. Uh, I mean, I'm going to go home today and work uh, at my house because my, my wife wants uh, uh, accent wall in our house, in our bedroom, like that board and batten thing, you know? Anybody? See, I, you, you're my people. No one raised their hand. And so I had to go research what that was. And then I had to figure out how to execute it. So this weekend, I will spend the vast majority of my time working for free, spending money on the stuff to do the work. So we, we work in various places, but like, in that sphere that I'm talking about is one you get paid to do work in. So, uh, and then faithfulness, 
looks very, I mean, it, not very differently, but it, it, it takes on unique qualities, and uh, it, it's, it's dramatized. Christ is sort of dramatically embodied in different ways in different spheres. So I, I love sitting down and reading the Bible, committing the truths of God's Word into our hearts so that, you know, when it is fitting for us to, uh, you know, uh, employ those both verbally and also in our lifestyle, we're able to do that. And then also, uh, in a discipleship or mentorship relationship, it's good to have that life-on-life dynamic as well so they can actually see you employ the biblical principles that you're being guided, you know, living your life. And so, um, and then also, I mean, if, if you go the life-on-life route, which we should, coupled with, you know, other types of things, this is not one-size-fits-all is what I'm trying to get at, um, we ought to be talking about how we are applying the scripture to our lives. So the people, it's, it, so basically more is caught than taught, yes, but we can be very explicit to help them catch it too. Yeah. So uh, I, I do really like, you know, even bringing my kids along with me and saying, hey, this is, you know, daddy just did this because of this scripture passage, because we see this in Christ. And then, so you're just pointing out what it is and how it is that you're living out faithfulness to the scripture and to Christ uh, really at every, every opportunity, which is what Christ did. He taught as he went. That's great. Anybody else want to speak to that? Speak on Pastor Troy. Uh, I'll just say that um, I, I really appreciate that because I think disciple-making has got to filter down from pastors down to the members. We're finding more and more folks who are joining our church have not had discipleship. And they've been in church for years, so... Uh, any any type of approach, you know, for us, hopefully we are, hopefully I am promoting it through expository preaching, you know, this is how we read, study, and apply the Bible, but then also just, right, Great Commission, it's making disciples, that's got to be a constant um, message that we give to let everybody know we're all in this together. Which, by the way, mark off Great Commission, I said it. <laughs> I think Brad has mentioned it. So we get fired if we don't use the Great Commission language in everything we do here. So you, you too. I don't, think, I don't think you've said it yet. Uh, but then consider some things like this. You know, for our church, if you remember, you have to be in a small group. And then we stress a lot of disciple making in that environment. And then... Equipping small group leaders. Hey, this is a huge responsibility that you would have to do. And then what does evangelism more holistically look like? Because it is leading someone to Christ. You don't stop there, right? Now we are walking with them as they grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So just very quickly, um, I think the excuse for many people in the church is to say, well, no one has discipled me or mentored me. So I'm looking for someone to, to, to pour their life into me so then I can then therefore pour into somebody else's. Be the person to somebody else that you wish you had, even if it hasn't been done for you because it has to start somewhere. And so as you are you know, living out your life, as you're serving in your home, serving in your church, fulfilling the Great Commission, <laughs> that's precisely why I even made, brought this whole thing up just so I could say that. So, but anyway, but yeah, but, so, but, but really, um, as we're hoping for somebody to have mentored us or to mentor us still, 
um, be that for somebody else. And even if you fail miserably, they'll at least be able to have, say, someone did it for me and I can do it better. <laughs> and we just get better and better and better. Because we're a Great Commission seminary. <laughs> great Commission. <laughs> and every classroom is a Great Commission classroom. Um, well, we have a variety of doctorates represented uh, on the panel. And I, I was wondering if, if each one of you would just take a minute to talk about for you personally what's been the benefit of pursuing advanced theological training, specifically at the doctoral level? What's been the benefit of that for you, um, of, of doing a doctorate? Uh, what, how's that helped? Go first. Okay. <laughs> it, uh, I think, honestly, I made the mistake initially of starting too soon uh, because it was the next box to check. Uh, and I, whenever I do something, if there's a next step to take, then I want to take that step. It's just kind of the achievement-oriented person that I am. Uh, I got about a halfway through it, and my language was, mm, I need to spend some more time on my DAD before I do anything else with my PhD. Uh, my boys were young, and it was like, no, this is the season to be a dad. Uh, and so the, the question that I would invite you to wrestle with is, what opportunities... Uh, particularly for the Great Commission, uh, does this degree open for me? Uh, that um, doctoral work is work, um, and uh, it's worthwhile work. It's work that I enjoyed, and when uh, that opportunity to say, hey, this really would advance the ability to, um, to influence students in the backyard of where we are, Summit Church, Southeastern, this works well, uh, and it opened those opportunities to be more effective for the kingdom, uh, then um, it, it did wonders to be able to have the partnership where I have the role that I do here at the seminary and at the church uh, when it was just the next badge that I was wearing because uh, I wanted the highest degree anybody had. Um, not as much. Um, I think the, the benefit of the Ph.D. Um, was that I had lots of swirling thoughts that were just there moving around. And it's hard to – and all that's not worth anything unless you can articulate it. And so uh, the, one of the biggest transitions for me going from the master's level to the doctoral level was uh, not just hearing information, uh, but really having to um, do something with it and give it back in conversation, but also in written form. Uh, in the written form, obviously, beyond seminar papers is a dissertation. So uh, being able to make an argument, to sustain it, to be organized in the way to communicate an idea, uh, that really helps you in any type of other communication that you could imagine. And so uh, being able to uh, be clear and concise, um, it's, it just... It allows me to, I mean, and even in the dissertation, it's, you know, we, we say it's an, inch, it's an inch wide and a mile deep, but that exercise gives you the ability to apply that methodology that you've learned in articulating ideas to any and everything else that you might do as well, including a pulpit ministry. So uh, I, I think a doctoral pro process for me, I almost said process, that's the, I did a British degree, so uh, that's that sort of crying out as well. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, the, <laughs> I reverted, sorry. Uh, that process, you know, to my fellow Americans for the most part, um, is this very, very helpful in being able to organize that thought, especially okay. for the Great Commission? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great Commission. Uh, first of all, like to what Brad said, 
PhD work is work. I find a lot of people with a, with a very full life trying to cram it in the corners. I don't think you the benefit cramming in the corners because it should be a time for concentrated study and work and reflection. So from, from my PhD, it was developing a, a larger framework in all areas of theology, but then in-depth specialization, one year ecclesiology. So I, I got a very, very good in-depth knowledge of one particular area and a larger framework for the others. Uh, it doesn't involve writing and things like that, but recognizing this should be a concentrated season of study and do it because you have a, a goal. I mean, for me, it was teaching. Uh, God had called me to a teaching ministry. This is the required credential for most teaching positions. And so it was not just jumping through. It was a, a, a concentrated time of study for a season. Uh, so make the time to, to make, take advantage of it if you can. I, I would say do whatever you can to get in Dr. Hammond's Ph.D. seminar called The Doctrine of the Church. I mean that. I make my preaching students, you know, take his course. It's, it's fun. Phenomenal. For me, um, I had no theological training. I was a pre-med student. And so when God redirected my life and now I'm moving towards ministry, I needed help. And even though I did an MDiv and an MA in counseling, I just I felt like I was just scratching the surface of what I needed to know. I, mean, I hope I don't get in trouble for this. I think that's what an MDiv is. I think an MDiv is a really good introduction to all the different aspects of Christian ministry, but that's it. Because every time we teach an MDiv class, we walk away going, we just, that's the tip of the iceberg. And, and I felt like I needed a lot more. And so I did not approach the PhD to teach primarily I was invited to actually I really I wanted to figure out what it meant to be a pastor scholar and I wanted to remain in the local church and shameless plug I think that's what our PhD does I think it really equips the pastor scholar you know well and it's modified residency so you don't have to move here uh, I'll just say briefly as the assistant director of the DMIN program because we don't have anybody who has a DMIN represented uh, up here on the platform. Oh, do, do you have a DMIN, Dr. Hammond? Okay, double awesome. doc. There we go. Boom. Double doc. The DMIN program gives us the opportunity to be able to professionally develop guys who are doing local church ministry in a way that the things that you're reading are beneficial to your ministry and they're beneficial today. I tell guys all the time the kind of books that we have you reading in the DMN are the books that you're probably already grabbing off the shelf as soon as they're released. You're saying those are the books I want to read anyway. And so if you're going to read them and they're going to, be, going to benefit your ministry, then why not get a degree out of that and be able to sit for me I know whenever I was doing my PhD, one of the things that I enjoyed as much as any of the information that I gained was the community of people that I learned with and from. And when you get to sit in a room with six or eight other scholars who are reading the same books, and it's not a lecture format, it's a discussion, and you're getting to ask questions and be very targeted with your answers that was just immeasurably beneficial to me whenever I was going through the degree. So.